It is, moreover, evident from what has been said that it is not the function of the poet to relate what has happened, but what may happen, what is possible according to the law of probability or necessity. The poet and the historian differ not by writing in verse or in prose. The work of Herodotus might be put into verse, and it would still be a species of history, with meter no less than without it. The true difference is that one relates what has happened, the other what may happen. Poetry, therefore, is a more philosophical and a higher thing than history, for poetry tends to express the universal, history the particular. By the universal, I mean how a person of a certain type will on occasion speak or act, according to the law of probability or necessity, and it is this universality at which poetry aims in the names she attaches to the personages. This is Men with Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Hello and welcome back. And today I'm very excited that we are beginning That Hideous Strength. Now we are just going to be doing the preface today, so it won't be a very long episode. But this is what we were building up to with The Abolition of Man. That Hideous Strength is the fictional adaptation of The Abolition of Man. And I think it is probably Lewis's best work and maybe one of the best pieces of fiction in the English language. And part of what makes That Hideous Strength so good and I think even better than Abolition of Man, is that it is fiction. I opened this episode by reading a little section from Aristotle's Poetics. That's chapter 9 of his Poetics. And Aristotle takes a very high view of history, rightfully so, and he points out that history can tell us about what has happened in the past. But he goes on to point out that the poet, which also would include other uh, genres of fiction, the poet is able to tell us things that may happen, to give a projection of things that could happen in the future based off of lessons from the past, if it's done well. And it's this feature of the poet, the writer of fiction, that allows them to be even more philosophical than the historian, Aristotle says. They are able to pursue that love of wisdom to an even greater degree than the historian. And so fiction that is well done actually has the potential to be an even greater teacher than the past. So with that hideous strength, we'll see Lewis take the ideas that he's explaining out in the lectures he gave that formed the abolition of man. And we'll see him create a possible world of just what those different philosophies look like if they're carried out to their logical endpoints. So a couple things to note before we begin the title and the preface and all that. That Hideous Strength is actually the third book in a trilogy that's called the Ransom Trilogy. You might also see it called the Space Trilogy, but that's actually the improper language for what Lewis is explaining because he doesn't view space the way you might be thinking about it. So we'll get into that as we go, but uh, you might see it with that title as well. And I'm not going to cover what happens in the first two books. The first is Out of the Silent Planet, and the second is Paralandra. Uh, I'm going to touch on those things as we get to the book itself and as it becomes relevant to bring up certain things that already happened. But as you'll see in the preface, Lewis is writing this book 
with the intent that you could actually read this one on its own. And while I think you will get more out of it if you do the first two before this one, you still can read this on its own, like he says. All right, so if you actually look at the title of the book itself, it's That Hitty Strength, and then the subtitle is A Modern Fairy Tale for Grownups. And he'll explain what he means by this in the preface. So I'll save that. Then just below that, it says, The shadow of that hideous strength, sex, smile, and more, it is of length. And that's older English language from Sir David Lindsay in a poem called And Dialogue. And that's a reference to the Tower of Babel. So the shadow of that hideous strength, six mile, and more it is of length, if you just translate it to the modern English. So Lewis is deriving the title of this book from that poem by Sir David Lindsay. And the poem itself dates from the mid-16th century, a time period in which Lewis was extremely well-versed in nearly everything in the English language in literature, uh, as well as other languages. Okay, so this title is foreshadowing things that will happen in the book. The reference to the Tower of Babel that the poem is making reference to, that will come up again with the importance of language. Of course, this is something I've talked about already, and I've already mentioned this exact uh, quote by Sir David Lindsay. And in the story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel, the humans are trying to build themselves a tower with its top in the heavens. And as they say, this is so that they can make a name for themselves. So that is what we're going to see happen with that hideous strength, the book, the nice, as they're called in the book, they are an organization that is trying to do likewise. They are trying to build themselves this tower to the heavens, metaphorically speaking, to make a name for themselves. And we'll see what that looks like. And with the story of the Tower of Babel itself, the people wanted to build a tower to the heavens because the idea was that the gods dwelled in the heavens. So by building a tower to the heavens, then they could make a name for themselves because now they would be up in the dwelling place of the gods. Okay, so now to the preface. And I already read the preface when we did the series on the abolition of man, but I'm going to read it again here. It's really short. I have called this a fairy tale in the hope that no one who dislikes fantasy may be misled by the first two chapters into reading further and then complain of his disappointment. All right, so there we saw him call this a fairy tale, and then he uses the word fantasy. So while I think it's fine to just use the general term fiction to describe a whole host of things that fall under that general heading, and we could also uh, point out that Lewis is writing this Ransom Trilogy in maybe the science fiction genre, but there's a little bit of variation. Uh, the first book, uh, the Out of the Silent Planet book, that one is very much a science fiction type of book. The last one here, That Hit of Strength, I wouldn't uh, as easily call it science fiction. He calls it fantasy here. And if you look at the Greek etymology of you know where this word comes from, fantasy, it actually means to envision something, to imagine something, to have images of something. So that is what Lewis is doing in this book. He is imagining, or to put it another way, he is imaging. He's creating images of what it might appear. Appear is another word that is uh, in line with the etymology of fantasy. So he is creating images of what it might appear to be like if the philosophies in Abolition of Man came about in our real world. And then, of course, he also used the word fairy tale, and fairy tale was in the subtitle, a fairy tale for grown-ups. And we're still familiar with fairy tales today, whether the traditional Grimm brother fairy tales or 
um, the ones by Hans Christian Andersen or others. So we're generally familiar with fairy tales, but there's a lot more behind the idea of fairy tales and this world of fairy. Fairy is spelled differently than what you're thinking. Uh, but I'm going to save that, I think, for after this book. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an essay on fairy stories, and we'll do a short series or maybe just an episode or two, however many it takes, after we do that hideous strength on Tolkien's essay on fairy stories and this whole world of fairy but at least worth noting here is that fairy stories doesn't mean just this, you know, light and happy and everything's great. And, uh, you know, there's nothing that goes wrong in the story that that's not what true fairy stories are. And if you just think about the fairy stories that you're probably thinking that you got in your head, you know, that that's the case, you know, you've got Hansel and Gretel where you've got death and people starving and witches and trickery and, uh, malevolent characters and all this. So that is important just because you got to get out of your head the image that fairy stories are these things that are just so innocent uh, and there's you know no, no danger, everything's great, and that's not the case. And that's important for understanding that hideous strength because that's not how that hideous strength is. You know, there's plenty of evil in that hideous strength. All right, so we've done one sentence of the preface. All right, so sentence two. If you ask why, intending to write about magicians, devils, pantomime animals, and planetary angels, I nevertheless begin with such humdrum scenes and persons. I reply that I am following the traditional fairy tale. We do not always notice its method, because the cottages, castles, woodcutters, and petty kings with which a fairy tale opens have become for us as remote as the witches and ogres to which it proceeds. So there you can see Lewis has a proper understanding of fairy tale. And it has the, uh, you know, the pleasant things, the cottages, the castles, right? And it also has witches and ogres. All right. Then he writes, but they were not remote at all to the men who made and first enjoyed the stories. They were indeed more realistic and commonplace than Bracton College is to me. For many German peasants had actually met cruel stepmothers, whereas I have never in any university come across a college like Bracton. Bracton is the name of the college in the story. This is a tall story about devilry, though it has behind it a serious point, which I have tried to make in my abolition of man. Tall story is in quotes there. That's another pun. He's talking about the Tower of Babel, right? That hideous strength, tall story, tall tower. In the story, the outer rim of that devilry had to be shown touching the life of some ordinary and respectable profession. I selected my own profession. Not, of course, because I think fellows of colleges more likely to be thus corrupted than anyone else, but because my own is the only profession I know well enough to write about. So he's pointing out that his setting for opening the story takes place at a college. The college is called Bracton, and of course, he's a professor. So he's trying to say that um, he's just using his own profession as the setting because that's what he actually knows about. I think he's actually being cheeky, to use the, the proper British word here. He's being cheeky about this and saying that he doesn't think fellows of colleges are any more likely to be corrupt. I think there's more to this, uh, and I think the book itself will bear that out. But if we return to Abolition of Man, he was pointing out that these philosophies that are then inculcated into young children who don't even know that it's happening, that those philosophies, they begin in the academy. So this is a case where I think there may be more here than meets the eye. And I think Lewis is having a little fun with us. All right, continuing. 
A very small university is imagined because that has certain conveniences for fiction. Edgestow has no resemblance, save for its smallness, to Durham, a university with which the only connection I have had was entirely pleasant. So Durham, that was the university where he gave those three lectures that became the abolition of man. I believe that one of the central ideas of this tale came into my head from conversations I had with a scientific colleague sometime before I met a rather similar suggestion in the works of Mr. Olaf Stapledon. If I am mistaken in this, Mr. Stapledon is so rich in invention that he can well afford to lend, and I admire his invention, though not his philosophy, so much that I should feel no shame to borrow. Olaf Stapledon wrote science fiction, so that's what that's about. Those who would like to learn further about Numenor and the true West must, alas, wait at the publication of much that still exists only in the manuscripts of my friend, Professor J.R.R. Tolkien. So a little bit of background uh, about why he puts that in there. In the biography of Tolkien, the biographer notes that Tolkien and Lewis had a little chat where they were talking about stories and how they wanted to make stories that they actually liked because there wasn't much of stories being written at their own time that they thought were actually good and this kind of stories they wanted to read. So supposedly they flipped a coin and whoever got you know one side of the coin, they had to write stories about time travel and whoever got the other side of the coin, they were going to write uh, these space travel type of stories. So Lewis gets the side of the coin where he's going to write the space travel and Tolkien gets the time travel. And out of this little bet, Lewis produces the Ransom Trilogy and Tolkien would eventually write the Silmarillion, which is the kind of prefatory material for the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And it wasn't published in his lifetime. It was published posthumously by his son. But that's what Lewis is talking about when he says um, that they must await the publication of much that still exists in the manuscripts of Tolkien. Okay, back to the preface. The period of this story is vaguely after the war, so the period of Lewis's story in that his strength is vaguely after the war. It concludes the trilogy of which Out of the Silent Planet was the first part and Paralandra the second, but can be read on its own. And Lewis was writing this in World War II, so he signs off the preface with C.S. Lewis, Magdalen College, Oxford, Christmas Eve, 1943. So those lectures that formed the abolition of man, those were in February of 1943. This preface is, you know, within that same year. So you get the time frame here of he's writing abolition or he's, you know, giving the lectures that become abolition of man. And he's also writing that hideous strength. This is all happening during World War II. All right. And that is the end of the preface. We will begin chapter one next week. We'll be doing this book for 17 weeks because it's a 17 chapter book. So one chapter at a time. And if you want, you could read the chapter ahead of time, or you could read it after, if you think you'll get more out of it after I've covered some of the stuff in it, I'm not going to be reading through the entirety of each chapter. That's way too much material. Uh, instead, I'm just going to kind of give some summary and then highlight some points and we'll discuss key issues. And in two days, it is the first the inaugural C.S. Lewis Reading Day. This is an event that was begun by the guys from Pints with Jack, and I'll be putting up an episode on Wednesday, the 29th, in honor of the first C.S. Lewis Reading Day. And the 29th is Lewis's birthday, so that's why the guys from Pints with Jack picked the 29th. 
So I'll be putting up a special episode where I'm reading through what I think is Lewis's most prophetic essay. So we've covered his most prophetic work of nonfiction, The Abolition of Man. Then I'm doing that short episode on what I think is his most prophetic essay. And then we're going to continue on into That Hideous Strength, which I think is probably Lewis's most prophetic work overall, because it is a fairy tale for grown-ups or fantasy. It is able to do that thing that Aristotle pointed out that fiction is able to do. It can give us what things may be in the future, rather than just telling us about things in the past. So it has that potential for even a greater teacher than history. And finally, to end this week, I'll put up an episode on Friday of a conversation I had with the host of the C.S. Lewis Book Club podcast. So that'll be on Friday. So Wednesday, a special episode for the inaugural reading day, and then Friday, that conversation. And that'll be it for today. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have time, you can write me a review. And if you want to interact with anything on the show, you can find the show's page at menwchests. That's on Instagram and Twitter. As a king governs by his executive, so reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the chest, magnanimity, sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this mental element that man is man, for by his intellect he is mere spirit, and by his appetite mere animal 